Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, Josh's friend. (laughs) So true. (laughs) We're going to celebrate friendship in this episode of our season on the films of 1992. It's Jason's pick. And uh, what movie did you pick, Jason? Josh, I chose a movie called Peter's Friends. It's about Peter and his friends. Mm hmm. That's uh, truth in advertising from the title of this film. This was a film I knew about back in the day, and it kind of was one of those word of mouth movies. But uh, I hadn't really ever seen it until maybe last year or the year before, probably last year. And it's a it's an interesting uh, kind of British, you know, uh, subgenre of like, you know, we're all getting together for the weekend type thing. And, you know, look at all these characters and how they interact, which has become such a huge popular genre. And I feel like this is one of the beginning films of it. And I like this movie. So that's why I chose it. Well, I'm glad that you liked it. That's a good start for your pick. Um, So, yeah, this is uh, an early and lesser known film from director Kenneth Branagh. I would say if you uh, go through his filmography, this is not usually the first one that comes to mind. People think either of his Shakespeare movies or more recently his blockbuster movies. But this is a bit more low key than he's typically known for. Uh, And he does star in this film as one of Peter's friends uh, alongside quite an impressive ensemble. I feel like this is one of those movies that's not very well known, but is packed with famous people in some cases before they were super well known. In addition to Kenneth Branagh, we have Emma Thompson, who was at the time Kenneth Branagh's wife, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Imelda Staunton, Rita Rudner, who is also the co-writer of this film. Uh, Tony Slattery, who I know you're a big fan of, Jason. And uh, I don't know, am I missing anybody famous from this cast? It's quite packed. Yeah, let's see. Are you missing anyone in there? Philida Law? Is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, I think so. Philida, Philida, who is is Emma Thompson's mother. So it's quite a a family affair there for Emma Thompson. Yeah, and Alfonsia Emanuel, who is a huge theater actor. Yeah, she's the only one really, or the main one in this cast, who didn't go on to become a much bigger star. But this was sort of, uh, at the time, compared very, very heavily to The Big Chill, the American film about a group of college friends getting together at a reunion and having kind of revelations about their personal lives and whatever. I Did you feel that way, Jason? Have you seen The Big Chill? Yeah, I like The Big Chill a lot. Obviously, this one doesn't revolve around someone who's dead. You know? Right, uh, yes. Although... Peter does inherit the manor that they stay in this beautiful British, uh, you know, basically, I, I guess you would call it a manor, but it's a, almost a castle. It's so big, right? It you is know? huge. It's like uh, it's like Downton Abbey or something in there. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, I in general, like I like movies and I think you do, too. And I know we've both kind of written things in that uh, kind of genre of like people um, coming together after a long time. and. Uh, kind of placing where they were then and where they are now. And then this is also, especially now that we're seeing so many of these uh, single location pandemic movies come out. Like, so there's a lot of cool things that went on about this movie that I still think are very relevant to films today. Right. Yeah. This movie takes place almost entirely 
within this one massive house. Even the prologue, which is when these characters are still in school and they're performing as part of this comedy musical troupe or whatever, they're actually performing at that house for Peter's father and, uh, I don't know, friends or family or associates or whatever at a New Year's Eve party. So even that is within this house. And then it kind of shifts to this 10 years later when they all return to this house. So it, it's very much uh, essential to the film. And you could have shot the entire thing just at the house, right? Like all the little bits that weren't at the house could have been at the house and, you know, maybe the train station if you wanted to. But you could have made this whole thing in the house if you wanted to. Right. And it was not a hugely budgeted film, although it wasn't a, a tiny, no budget film either, obviously. And and Kenneth Branagh, this is an early film for him, but he had achieved success with his Henry V Shakespeare adaptation, which was his first film, as well as the thriller Dead Again, which also featured Emma Thompson that came out the year before this. So he was able to, to get a decent sized movie going. This was a medium minor success i guess at the box office grossed 7.2 million dollars on its budget of 5 million supposedly but it doesn't look like a huge budget movie so um maybe actor wise you know these people were all doing well enough Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry had done some stuff on television and Kenneth Branagh again had achieved his success with a couple of films. So, you know, maybe these were all up and coming stars who were well, Emma Thompson's already famous. We know that. And, yeah. you know, um, Kenneth Branagh, I think was all these guys were, uh, like you said, either television or theater. So many yes. big theater stars. And I don't think we kind of realize it when we're watching this, how big of stars they were in England. Right. Because, you know, it's a smaller country. These are all like national um, kind of celebrities that were were or had been national celebrities basically for the entire decade before. A lot of them came from the Cambridge Footlights, which was that kind of uh, college comedy, sketch comedy group. I guess, you know, you could compare it to something like Kids in the Hall or SCTV, right? But Laurie and Fry and Thompson and Slattery and Martin Bregman who is the co-writer and Rita Rudner's husband, were all in the footlights and they had television shows, specials in the early 80s. So I think these were all people that were well known. And what I had read was, you know, Fry and Lori didn't want to do the movie because of the meta kind of like, okay, now we're playing like people who were in a troupe and we're coming back as a troupe. And Kenneth Branagh just said, it'll be fine. And then they did the movie and it was fine. <laughs> right, right. And I know, you know what, you're right, because I feel like we think of in the US, or at least, I, I don't know, I look at this movie and I'm like, oh, this was before all these people were super famous. But you're right, they were much more famous in the UK, especially like Fry and Laurie with all their TV stuff that didn't really make it over here until later. And Hugh Laurie didn't become a big star here until he did House. And then people kind of rediscovered his early comedy stuff. So you're right. This was probably a bigger collection of famous people at the time than it would have appeared like to American audiences. And I also think this was at a time where it was less about like global box office and you could sustain like a British film with a British audience. Right. And they did. And it did come over to America and it did fine. You know, the commitments, the Irish film, which is similar in some ways, wasn't that far away as far as being released around this time. So like there was this kind of cool little industry and now we're seeing it take shape in 
different forms via streaming, but this genre is like a, it's a real genre at this point in time. Yeah, yeah, it is. And this one, maybe not as famous as The Big Chill, but I'm sure influential on other films of this type. So it did make it to America and it did get a pretty decent size release here. And critical reaction looks like it was kind of mixed to positive. Uh, The movie got uh, quite a diverse reaction from Siskel and Ebert. Uh, Ebert gave it thumbs up and enjoyed it. Siskel gave it a thumbs down and really did not enjoy it. He thought it was entirely phony and he didn't believe in any of the characters. And he said the writing was all sitcom level. And so he had almost nothing good to say about this film. But Ebert was a fan and gave it a positive review in his written review as well. He said, this project is not as ambitious as Kenneth Branagh's Henry V and Dead Again, but it shows a sure feel for the material and a stage actor's cheerful willingness to go with scenes that work, even the body and the sentimental. The audience must also be willing to go along, and I was, enjoying the bitchiness, the dramatic revelations, even the bad puns. If film is basically a voyeuristic medium, then one of the questions that might be asked about Peter's friends is, would we like to be one of these friends and attend such a reunion ourselves? I would. That's nice. That's really nice, Roger. I'm trying to imagine Roger Ebert joining Peter and his friends at this English manor house and how that would go. Uh, I, um, you know, it's it's really about the characters and the relationships. And I think, you know, as we kind of dissect it, I do think in act two, it kind of loses some momentum because it just becomes a little less lighthearted and a little heavy. And we kind of go over the same points a few times. But Overall, it is the relationships and the characters that carry this movie through. Yeah, I I did think, I mean, I was not in agreement with Siskel in his extreme distaste for this film, but I did think the tonal mix of that wacky sitcom-y material, especially with Rita Rudner's character and the more serious stuff, not only with the big revelation about Peter at the end, but also with what a lot of the other characters go through. Sometimes there was a bit of whiplash between that wacky, funny stuff and the really heavy stuff. And not that you can't do both of those things in a single movie, but I wasn't sure if Kenneth Branagh had a full handle on how to balance it. And and you bring up two things, because like, I I mean, I think the Rita Rudner character, uh, for a long time, very unlikable until she gets with the Emma Thompson character and then kind of like is a friend to her. I mean, you know, she was a co-writer on this, so they wrote the character, right? But right. I, I think and she gets to play the most broad, silly character in the whole movie, which I'm sure was what she wanted. And she's not, you know, she's not typically an actor. So playing a more serious role maybe wouldn't have worked for her. Right. And she did fine in it. It's just that it doesn't necessarily fit. And her character doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of the group. So, but I do think that Peter Revelation, I really thought, really worked well. Act three worked very strongly for me. Yeah. And I mean, maybe we'll get to that later, but I think it's something that hearing that now doesn't have the same right. impact that it would have had then. And that really is is quite a bold thing for them to do in a movie in 1992. So, so watch the movie because we're going to spoil it. We are indeed. So Janet Maslin in the New York Times said, although Peter's friends eventually sounds a note of gravity, And although it addresses AIDS more directly than many films have, it remains a lightweight entertainment, enjoyable mostly for the fun of hearing arch, skillful actors deliver droll remarks. 
Mr. Branagh's direction is blithe and serviceable without having any particular hallmarks, save perhaps an appreciation of the talent he has assembled. If the film didn't have two vulgar showbiz characters to make fun of, it would have a lot less verve. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the Branagh character is an interesting character because he was part of this group and he found all this fame and fortune in Hollywood, but you can tell he's just like dying inside. He misses um, something real and creating something with his friends and, you know, um, or just being back to doing something artistic again. Right, right. Um, They definitely try to give him more gravity than Rita Rudner's character as his wife. I assume that character is at least partially inspired by Martin Bergman himself, who was a member, as you said, of the Cambridge Footlights, is English, and then moved to the U.S. and started working in Hollywood on sitcoms and met Rita Rudner. So hopefully he wasn't quite as dead inside as Kenneth Branagh's character, but I'm sure that was, he drew from some of his personal life for that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and when we did just totally, uh, as, as we just said, we wouldn't spoil it yet. We did, uh, Janet Maslin in her review that came out at the time the movie came out, completely spoiled the movie right there. So it's always fascinating to me. Uh, we've talked about this, I think more in our seasons from older years, from like the sixties and seventies, how movie reviews used to just spoil every single detail of the plot of a movie all the way up until the end. And now it's such a taboo thing that people will go crazy if you give any hint of plot developments beyond the first five minutes of a movie or something. So that's not really the point here, but kind of fascinating to me. So uh, Todd McCarthy in Variety was less enthused. He said, already being called a British big chill, Kenneth Branagh's third feature is a sometimes funny, often cloying entertainment about a group of old friends who experience a year's worth of crises in two days. Glib humor and heavy emphasis on sex could put this over with the dating crowd and 30-something couples, but reaction will be decidedly mixed. Scripters have loaded the plot down with an array of troubles and complications suitable to all-out farce, but not to semi-realistic character comedy. Many of the lines and the shadings brought to them by these expert performers are good for some laughs, and Pick has plenty of energy, but it can't be taken as seriously as it wants to be. I mean, again, that goes to like the, you know, the kind of tonal shifts and everything. And I don't agree with him that there was a big focus on sex. I mean, you know, there are adults talking about sex here and there. You know? Right. And there's not I mean, there's one scene where uh, uh, Alfonsia Emanuel's character walks in on Emma Thompson getting it on with the I don't know what exactly his position in the house is. He's the he, son of the housekeeper. Yeah. Um, you can call him houseboy, Josh. Houseboy. She's getting it on with the houseboy. <laughs> and but even that, you don't really see much of anything. No, you don't. And Alfonsia's character and Tony Slattery have a lot of sex, but there's no I mean, but it's there because that's what the relationship is based on, right? Right, so, right. And it's not know. like these graphic sex scenes or that it's meant to be super titillating or anything like that. I really don't think that that's the case. Um, and like I said, I feel like the tone, the tonal balance is a little off at times. But I didn't think it was impossible to take the serious scenes seriously. I mean, to me, part of the problem was that I could take those scenes seriously, but then it was jarring to shift back to something wacky and silly. And I kind of wanted a little less of that serious because I think like act one is so much fun. Like I like the tone. I like these characters and I'm all for the conflict and like getting deeper into it. But I do think it like weighs itself down a little uh, half, uh, you know, act two. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there is a point, I think, in the movie where you're like, okay, every one of these characters has like some serious, serious drama going on. There's no character who's just like, yeah, I'm good. I'm happy. And, Houseboy. Right. I guess so. I mean, he's not an important character. <laughs> but, you know, all of these friends have enough going on in their lives that they could have their own whole movie about it, I guess, is the thing. And that that maybe goes to the idea of it being weighed down with a bit too much of that. But but I, I think it mostly does justice to each of them, you know, the arc where they go through and they resolve their issues or they come to a certain point of conclusion about their issues and it doesn't necessarily feel shortchanged. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So you said you just saw this recently. So this wasn't something that you uh, picked up in the 90s around other kind of similar films. No, I knew about it for a long time. And then I think last year when that documentary on Tony Slattery came out, or maybe that was 2020 called What's the Matter with Tony Slattery? And it was all about like what a huge star he was and how, um, you know, he's basically fell off the map, you know, um, which was partially due to drugs and partially due to mental health. and um he was confronting his past about not just those issues but about being sexually abused by a priest and everything i did this whole deep dive on him because i am fascinated by him as a performer not just that story of like you know he was one of them they basically said he was on like <laughs> you know tv all the time in england for years right he was yeah. the go-to guy on on shows i loved him on whose line and i think he's like an electric performer but um so I started deep diving and I literally watched every single episode of Whose Line Is It Anyway that he was on. Wow. And then I started looking up his filmography, which isn't much. Right. right. And, um, you know, I read the articles about his uh, comeback, which I hope he still comes back. And, um, you know, this was the movie that kind of stood out and he's good in it. He's got a smaller part, but he's his character, while uh, obnoxious, he's very good at that character. That. Yeah, that character was that might have been the one character, not the Rita Rudner character, but that guy where I was like, this is a little much. And when he exits the movie, I felt like this is kind of a relief that I don't have to spend time with this guy anymore. And he's meant to be obnoxious. So you're right. It's Tony Slattery is doing a good job with it. But um, that was one character that I thought maybe was pushing a little a little too far. So I watched it and I thought, you know, like I have a background in improv and acting and I think there's that level. See, there's the other thing is it's not just that they're old friends. So they were in a theater troupe together, right? So there's that level of trust that you have to have with each other constantly on stage. And, um, you know, that that I think kind of adds to those relationships that we're kind of exploring all these years later. And I just kind of fell for the movie. I, it's not the greatest movie, you know, but it's a good movie. It's, an, I think, a movie that kind of, like I said, sets some precedents. And um, I like that it's a single location. And I do believe these characters. And I think it's a, a pretty honest look with quippy dialogue as well. Yeah, I bought into the characters as people, even if the tone didn't always work for me. And I had never seen this movie, nor I don't know that I had ever even really heard of it until you mentioned having seen it, whatever that was, a year or two ago. Uh, I mean, certainly I've heard of Kenneth Branagh and I had seen other movies by him and I, I'm familiar with most of these performers. And I, too, was a big fan of Whose Line Is It Anyway as a teenager. I never deliberately watched every Tony Slattery episode, but I certainly saw plenty of the episodes that he was in that were airing on Comedy Central back in the 90s. But this was just something that was never on my radar. And I do like this kind of film. So I was glad to to have the opportunity to see it for this podcast. So thank you, well. Jason. 
You're welcome, Josh. Dave, uh, had you ever, did you know about this movie? No, I didn't know anything about it. And I mean, I've seen so few Kenneth Branagh movies that I've never even seen his Thor. Oh. Like that's one of the only MCU movies I haven't seen. So, I mean, yeah, he's kind of somebody that I'm very new yeah. to. So that know. that's the other thing. This is a Kenneth Branagh redemption episode because we talked about him in Wild Wild West, you know, yeah. at his worst. And now like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. His best moment <laughs> right. So, um, you know, it's fun to, to, to have that. And also because like, when we make our picks, it's like you chose Wayne's World this year, which is a totally, you know, we all had fun watching it again. And I think like in seasons past, like I've had some like big, big picks that everyone knows. But it's also fun to find these like under the radar ones that maybe like we can interest some other people in checking out. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's always great to balance those picks. And I certainly did pick a very, very well-known film that I love. Um, but it's great to see something lesser known and give it some attention and hopefully uh, give people a reason to check it out. So uh, is there anything else uh, on the background here you want to talk about, Jason? So I had mentioned the uh, theater troupe that they were all in, which was the Cambridge Footlights. They were, you know, in Cambridge University in, I think, 1982, the early 80s. So it was uh, Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry, Emma Thompson, Tony Slattery and Martin Bergman. So it's a, a talented group there. And um, as you had mentioned, uh, uh, Stephen Fry and uh, Hugh Laurie had uh, done two TV shows, a bit of Fry and Laurie and then Jeeves and Wooster. So all these guys were everywhere. Tony Slattery, I know after the uh, Who's Line stuff, he and Mike McShane had a show for a little while. So they were all kind of just in it. This was originally supposed to be a movie set in America, but when Kenneth Branagh got a hold of it, they they were able to translate it over to that kind of Cambridge Footlights um, you know, influence. And, and I, I'm glad they did it that way. Yeah, it makes sense. And I wondered about like, oh, it never seems like something that was poorly shifted over. And I'm sure the fact that Martin Bergman himself is English and was also in the Cambridge Footlights helped. It's not just written by Rita Rudner, American comedian. It has the the background of someone who knows this material and has the experience with it. The last thing I wanted to mention, Josh, is you talked about that prologue where the troupe is performing while they're in college, you know, on the eve of their graduation for Peter's father and his friends. And they did it like a real comedy troupe. They did that all in one take. And it's a four minute one take shot. And that's pretty cool that they did that like that. Yeah, yeah. You definitely believe that that's a college comedy troupe because that on the one hand, you're like, oh, this is kind of impressive. But on the other hand, it's like, this is really silly, immature stuff that you could see. At least that was my impression that you could see some sort of college students doing and sure. completely misjudging what these stuffy old people want at their New Year's Eve party in, you know, this fancy manor house or whatever. Right. So we'll come back then and talk more about our general thoughts on Peter's friends. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about Jason's pick, Peter's Friends, from director Kenneth Branagh. And we've really talked a lot here about what you like about this movie, Jason. Is there anything else in particular that really drew you to it? No, I mean, I do think, yeah, you're right. That's the end of the episode, Josh. Um, <laughs> no, I like, I like, I also wanted to spotlight one of the reasons I picked it was like, we have talked about, I think Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh before, but like Stephen Fry is like basically the Steve Martin of Britain, right? And maybe some people don't know about him. And Tony Slattery, huge 
you know, like we said, deal. Hugh Laurie was already, you know, ascended to the height of fame before he came over here, right? So it was a good reason for us to look at these people. And and they all became more famous in America after this, I'd say. So yes. um, th- those were kind of the reasons. I like that, you know, we've talked about this. Like, it's a beautiful setting. Um, it all works in there. And um, yeah, the, the, I think those were the reasons I like the characters. I think the dialogue, which is, uh, there's a lot of funny stuff in there. Um, and um, that third act really works for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is a lot of fun, funny stuff in the dialogue. Like I said, some of it, especially with Rita Rudner's character, feels a little sitcom-y. And you can see that this is a movie co-written by someone with that kind of background, by a stand-up comedian, by and, and not just a stand-up comedian, but with a particular kind of joke style that's less personal and less um, down-to-earth, maybe. Um, but and and someone who would also have worked on in a sitcom in the sitcom world, Martin Bergman. So I there's parts that were like that, but it didn't go too far for me. And anytime it was like, you know, Rita Rudner with the thigh master or whatever, where I thought this is a little silly, it it shifts back to something more grounded. Yeah, I wanted to fa- I agree with you on that, like where she's like, oh, I'm eating and now I have to be like this California fake thing. But like right. but the quippy stuff. I'm going to defend a lot of that because these are Hollywood people and professional writers and performers, the characters that we're right. talking no, about. No, that's true. That's true. And, they, and that they talk like that. So yeah. that's fair. I mean, one thing that was interesting to me is that I feel like a lot of movies and stories about people who are creative when they're younger and then the story is about them being older. It's always about like, oh, we it's about missed opportunities or I wanted to be an actor, a writer, a musician, whatever, but I got married and I had kids and now I work in an insurance agency or something like that. Every single one of these characters, I guess with the exception of Peter, whose job seems to be just like being a rich person. All yeah, the rest they never of the- do find out what his job is. <laughs> right, and he might not have one. I mean, he's got that house. You, he clearly doesn't need to work. Um, but otherwise, all the rest of these characters are still working in creative professions, whether it's Kenneth Branagh as this sitcom writer, or Hugh Laurie and Imelda Staunton uh, characters who write advertising jingles, or Alphonse Emanuel who works as a costume designer in the theater, Emma Thompson works in the publishing industry. So they're all still pursuing these uh, creative endeavors in one way or another. And, and I just felt like that was kind of a rare thing. Like, And there's no, I guess Kenneth Branagh has a bit of an arc about his dissatisfaction with his career, but for the most part, that's not what the focus is for these characters that they're they feel like their ambitions have been thwarted or something like that. There's a scene with um, uh, Peter and Kenneth Branagh's character, um, you know, where they talk about that play that they were working on. And then uh, the Branagh character, Andrew, um, just leaves for America at like the first chance. So that was the only time they talked about a, a missed opportunity. But you, but you know what? It also worked for um a couple of reasons. One, because we don't know what Peter does and if he, you know, how much that did affect him. Two, because you could tell Andrew still has some guilt over that, right? Right. And, you know, when you're talking about that Peter character, there's that great scene with him and uh, is it Vera, the Philida Law character? Yeah, the, the housekeeper and cook. And she says, you know, he he says that 
when we get to the big revelation at the end, one of the reasons he didn't tell her is because he knows she always disapproved of his lifestyle. And he says, and she says, you know, I was here when you were a kid. I helped raise you. I never disapproved of you. I disapproved of all the potential you let slip away. So I think that was like a really, really, uh, you know, gutting good moment in there. Yeah. And you you assume earlier on that, oh, this is going to be this homophobic person from a previous generation who is is disapproving of the fact that Peter is bisexual and that presumably he's been uh, cavorting with various people uh, of of all genders for the last 10 years. And that's not what it turns out to be. And they really have this nice relationship. This sort of the catalyst for the movie is Peter's father has died and has left him this this big manor house. And, and we don't really I don't recall if we hear much about Peter's mother, but he, he says that, you know, he had this kind of distant relationship with his father. And only now that his father is dead, does he really miss him? So clearly he wasn't necessarily close with his parents. And maybe that Vera character was more of a mother figure to him than than his actual mother or, or either of his parents were. I, I got that because she, you know, there's a scene where Peter even asked, like, if I keep the house, would you consider staying on? And she always, she says, you know, this was your father's house. It's time for me to go watch videos or something like that, which is timely. Yes. Um, but yeah, so you get this. And then all these uh, Peter says he wants to throw a party and invite, you know, his old troop. And you kind of see, um, you know, the the different characters, which is uh, Roger. And uh, Amelda Staunton's character, Mary, who are married and um, just are dealing with the weight of a death of their one of their infant sons. And that is a very weighed down relationship that I'm glad there was catharsis for them. But I feel like that was one that maybe they relied on a little too heavily, you know, over and over again. Yeah. And I think that's one, too, where when you learn that what the problem they're having is that their child died, it's like, this is a lot. And maybe we needed more time to fully process this to get their whole arc. I mean, you get the arc, which is that Amelda Staunton is unable to sort of let go, is unable to, she's so afraid that their other child will die, irrationally afraid that their other child will die, that she can't do anything but constantly check on him. And then finally, she's able to relax a little and they reconnect in their marriage. But it, it does feel like maybe there's a bit of a step or two missing there to get from one point to another. Yeah. And what where I see that is in the relationship between the two of them in that, you know, he feels like she is blaming him. And at one point she says, well, I just need to blame someone. And I feel like we don't get that until that revelation. So that's where I think that is missing. Um, then you got that Sarah character who just, you know, is still living fast and loose, like really just is chasing what she can have and not settling down. And and she's with Brian, the Tony Slattery character, who's just there as a as to, you know, screw things up pretty much, you know. And uh, Maggie, the Emma Thompson character, is going to declare her love for Peter. And we've already talked kind of about the um, the uh, character of Rita Rudner and the Martin Bergman, the, the two that those are based on, Andrew and Carol. Right, right. Who are are married, but clearly not happy with each other. And he is the writer slash creator of her, by all accounts, bad 
sitcom, it sounds like, Who's in the Kitchen? Is that what it was called? Something like that? Right, right. It uh, sounds like a very British, like uh, Ricky Gervais on uh, Extras type thing, right? Right. So. Even though it's supposed to be an American sitcom, right, as far as, as we know. Although I was confused by the fact that they say that it airs at four in the afternoon. I don't know yeah. what kind of show that is. It's got. It's like Saved by the Bell with Rita Rudner, maybe, <laughs> something or something like, like that. that. I don't know. So. Yeah, like it's for kids or I, I don't really. There is the scene in the airport where the woman recognizes her and says that her kids watch the show, but she would never watch it or something like that. So maybe, well, so maybe it's idea. like a Disney channel thing and she's the right. mom or something, like something that. like so that. that. We don't sense. really find out, but it, it, it all we find out is that it's bad. Seemingly. Right. But that would also make sense <laughs> yeah. on the other aspects of the character in that, like the Andrew character clearly didn't go to America to write that type of show, like right. you know, a Disney channel. And then when uh, the Carol character gets a movie, you could see why that would be a big deal for her and everything. Right. right? She's she's so. so excited to be able to replace, is it Shelley Long? I think another very 1992 reference uh, in this in this film at the last minute. And that's how she uh, exits the film and seemingly exits their marriage. It doesn't sound like they're going to uh, keep things going. Yeah, but may, but that's good because not everything has to wrap up in a happy ending and they both say like let's take some time to think and you know. And and that's fine, you know. So Josh, did you um did you have any like favorite characters? You said that the the Brian character was really annoying not because yes. of anything but that's cuz how he was written. Did you have a uh, like I really think Peter's a good character in this movie. Peter is a good character, and I thought the treatment of his sexuality was surprisingly nuanced for 1992 when he, I mean, he's obviously very shy about it, but when he says that he's bisexual, I expected the typical sort of treatment of bisexuality in this time period, which is that it doesn't exist and it's just an excuse for him because he's really gay and isn't willing to say so, but that's not where it goes, and there's no indication that he's being disingenuous about that. And he has that line to Emma Thompson where, you know, he'll add her to his list of people that he finds attractive alongside uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and River Phoenix. So he's he's <laughs> running the whole spectrum there. And 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 nobody is judging him. I mean, as we said, even the housekeeper who seems like she might be the person to judge him, she doesn't. And all of his friends who he's clearly sort of reluctant to reveal things about are, are super supportive and are super helpful. And they don't, I mean, other than Emma Thompson getting embarrassed at having declared her love for him and being rejected. And even then it's a sweet moment and he clearly cares about her very much as his friend. Um, so yeah, I thought that treatment of that character was very sensitive, more so than I might've expected for a comedy from 1992. Yeah. And I, you know, Stephen Fry came out in maybe 2015 or something like that. So he had harbored his sexuality uh, without, you know, publicizing it for a long time. So I'm guessing he brought a lot of that to the table here. Uh, can we talk about Emma Thompson? This weird, you know, we we all watched, uh, you know, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Is that what it's yeah, called? This yeah, yeah. The recent movie that she did. Mm -hmm. She's fantastic in that. Movie. Yeah, she's great in that movie. What is this thing where Emma Thompson, who's one of the most talented actresses in the world and clearly a beautiful woman, is always playing like, oh, I'm just uh, I'm just not that good looking. And she never like has any self-confidence in her looks like it's a it's a reoccurring character trait that she has. And I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. You know? Yeah. And, and there's especially something weird going on 
not in in Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, but in this movie. And I, I in prep for this, watched the movies that Kenneth Branagh made right before this and right after this, Dead Again, the thriller that he did before this, and then Much Ado About Nothing, which was the Shakespeare adaptation that he did right after this, both of which feature Emma Thompson, who is at the time was his wife, and all of which feature her as sort of these insecure uh, characters who are not certain if they're worthy of love or whatever. So there's some weird dynamic perhaps going on in that relationship. Yeah. And we talked about her in love actually. And at least, uh, at least there was a motive for that type of feeling in love actually, which was that, you know, or her husband was kind of, uh, he didn't have sex with someone else, but he was clearly interested in that younger woman and everything. Like right. That, and so. I think to be fair to this movie, what they're trying to say is not that Emma Thompson is unattractive, but that this character is so insecure that she almost makes herself unattractive or is unwilling to believe that she could be attractive. And we have that whole makeover arc, which is a bit of a cliche where Rita Rudner, who is the opposite of that and is super, super confident, uh, you know, and is a famously attractive celebrity, gives her this makeover to help her with her confidence and be able to declare her love to Peter. And really what it turns out is that she's able to boink the houseboy, um, which seems like really the good the good move for her. Uh, but yeah, I definitely thought there's this one like brown sack looking dress that she wears for like half the movie that is the, oh, most, the dinner dress. Yeah, yeah, it's like the most unflattering looking piece of clothing you could possibly dress her in. I thought maybe they were going a little far with that. But you're right. It's a weird dynamic. Uh, so Josh, one of the things where I think it gets that British big chill, um, kind of, uh, moniker from is because the soundtrack is like, mm. you know, eighties pop and rock hits. And, um, it was good. It was like a good mood, you know, and I'm not just saying it cause there's a Springsteen song in there, Josh, like, I, I knew like that was gonna yes. come up. <laughs> but like they got the pretenders yeah. in there. They got a lot of good stuff in there that really kind of set the mood nicely for this piece, I think. Yeah, and a lot of really famous songs. Like maybe a lot of the budget went to licensing those songs because there are a lot of big, big hits on this soundtrack. I thought about that too. Yeah, yeah and and sure. that's not something that Kenneth Branagh was known for necessarily. And there was one review I can't remember what it was that I either from one that I quoted elsewhere or one that I didn't quote, but that said that Kenneth Branagh didn't know how to properly make use of those pop songs. But I don't think that that's true. I thought that they fit in well, and it was part of establishing the character's background in that particular time period, just like that opening montage of like historical events that occur between 1982 and 1992 to give context for what these people uh, kind of live through. So here's one criticism that I had. And, and I, you know, as admittedly, I've tried to write movies like this and uh, I'm working on one that's not like a reunion movie, but like a single kind of location thing where I think it would have benefited the film a lot. You have this amazing location and we see it at indoors, but we never see them other than like the when the one time they sing the way you look tonight, which is a lovely scene, right? Yeah, like, yeah, it would have been great to see like them outside playing a game together or a sport together and seeing the relationship, how it um you know, I mean, you still have these character traits and how they kind of revolve around each other with some action. You know, I think that was a missed opportunity here. 
Yeah, maybe so. There's a lot of just people sitting in rooms talking to each other and you could have had them engaged in more activities. And and yeah, maybe more things related to the fact that they were all these theater kids and they were in this troupe. And that that moment where they sing The Way You Look Tonight is really nice because it's one of those building things where they start and they just say to Hugh Laurie, like, oh, why don't you sing this song? And then Imelda Staunton is singing it with him. And then eventually they all join in and you kind of know that it's coming, but it's still a nice moment to show how well they connect and they all still know the words and they all still know their parts and everything. And, and at the very end of the movie, they do a kind of a reprise of their little song from the beginning. Right. Um, but, but somewhere in between there, there could have been a little more of that, of them reminiscing or trying to recapture the, the camaraderie they had as performers that we don't really uh, get from them where you could you can forget at times like, oh, right. They're not just friends. They were like right. collaborators in this troupe. He didn't invite them all from all over the world just to eat dinner together. You know, right. so. but no, I agree. Like they could have done something from like the theatrical point or, you know, Rita Rudner could have led them all in a yoga class, any of that stuff. Right. Like and I think it would have worked out well. Um, so Josh, let's spoil the end of the movie now, I think. Oh, right. Well, and, we've kind of spoiled it already, but yeah, to be very specific, Peter, who has revealed to, I think really just to, to mainly to Emma Thompson about being bisexual, he lets them all know that he is HIV positive, which as Janet Maslin pointed out was a rare thing still, I think in 1992, um, and the way they treat it, I think being so supportive of him and no one is afraid of him or anything like that. Like just these very basic human decency things is sadly rare for something from this era. Yeah. The two things that I took from that scene, one, the kind of catalyst was the Andrew character had started drinking again after being, you know, sober for a year and was, uh, you know, being a, being a jerk to everyone as, as he was. And then, man, uh, I think that's, that's Bronner's, best moment in this movie when he finds out that Peter is HIV positive and it just like destroys him, you know? Yeah. Um, I thought it really just really good work. And then the other thing that I took from it, which was, you know, Peter saying, I don't have AIDS. I have the AIDS virus and like, just what a, you know, Hey man, uh, we've come a long way. Right. So, and you know, I plan on living a long time and having a nice life and it might not be years until I get AIDS. Right. And everything right. Like that, right. So. Yeah. And just having to like sort of explain that, which an audience in 1992 might not have even understood, but they take the time to do that and, and make it clear that someone like Peter, who is in this position, could live for years. And I mean, given the advances that happened, someone like that could still be alive today if that had happened. Yeah, especially because he has all that money. And as we <laughs> yes. know, you know, that uh, doesn't hurt when you're treating medical right he already mentions being on some drug i don't know what exactly they had in terms of treatment for aids in 1992 but you know he's clearly got access to the to the best uh of what there is the way they treated that and then then you look back and now you understand okay his dad died he's dealing with this this is why this weekend was so important to him it really wrapped it up nicely for me and then it, you know you, you see the them all singing again and the old picture kind of of them and and that book end and it's good it's a good good way to t take it out yeah it's a nice little ending to a nice little movie so uh should we give this a rating then i think so but we didn't let dave talk at all we're oh, not yeah. dave's friends no 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 we, we, <laughs> yeah we brought dave i'm the outsider here, here. To reunite with us but just to sit there 
Uh, did you like mm-hmm. this one, Dave? Yeah, I liked it. Um, I I was mainly just going to talk about the soundtrack, if anything. But, uh, you know, we kind of did get into that already. But yeah, no, it it's a it's a nice movie. And uh, I liked spending time with the characters. And I I think even with that mix of tones you guys were talking about, it, it all works yeah. really well. So, Dave, even though um, Josh found Tony Slattery's character annoying, you didn't want to punch his face on this one, Dave? <laughs> How did I know you were going to say that? Like, <laughs> no, he seems like a nice man. All right, Josh, you want to rate this out of five friends? Five friends? That's good. Yeah. There, there's. I have yeah. none. <laughs> Dave has zero friends. Dave's friends. Uh, the movie is just a shot of Dave sitting in his podcast studio alone for two hours, crying in my big yeah. house. NC <laughs> eight, eight seconds long. Yeah. Um, no, I it got three and a half from me. Um, I I do like it. I like. Um, the world and um you know we'll talk about kind of some of the movies that it influenced going forward but um yeah three and a half it's a it's a good movie you should look look for it yeah i i'm gonna give it three it's nice it's pleasant maybe a little forgettable but certainly if you like this kind of thing and like these actors it's worth checking out people may not have heard of it give it a shot so dave yeah i'm going three as well it's it's a three movie for sure yeah, I think so. It's a right down the middle, and maybe we'll talk about this more, but I feel like this is sort of the defining characteristic of Kenneth Branagh movies. <laughs> but we'll get into that and more when we talk about the legacy of Peter's friends. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about Jason's pick, Peter's Friends. And Jason, you've mentioned a lot here about movies that this influenced. So do you want to talk about the influence of Peter's Friends on later kinds of films? I took this uh, note down from um, a little site called Wikipedia. (laughs) Sure. Um, But I think it's accurate. It says, this is often regarded, along with Four Weddings and a Funeral from 1994, as being one of the films that kicked off the wave of British rom-com slash Curtis Land films that came to dominate throughout the 90s and early 2000s. Many of the elements of later films were laid down here, including a central character with a group of quirky friends, characters being thrown together in embarrassing social situations, use of contemporary music soundtrack to highlight expound on plot points, and actors and actresses who appeared in Peter's Friends went on to form the backbone of later rom-coms and Curtis Land films. And Curtis Land referring to Richard Curtis, who is not involved in this film, but is sort of the the king of these British rom-coms that we've talked about, Love Actually. Uh, we talked about him a lot there. And, and I think he, you could imagine this being a Richard Curtis film because he has that same kind of tone in his writing where it's generally a comedy, but there are serious emotional arcs and it has moments of gravity to it, but it's always balanced out with like fun camaraderie. And I think that whether he saw this movie and was influenced by it or was just kind of, I'm sure he was he was coming up and achieving yeah, yeah. It was a contemporary of this and and working in this in a similar kind of mode. Josh, you know, uh, we have mentioned multiple times on this movie how much we love like Gross Point Blank. I think that is uh, a little different based on the plot, but all the other elements in there just like really hit, and I think that's a great example of something like this. That is a great movie, and and yeah, the whole the reunion. 
uh, plot device is something that I always love. The people who haven't seen each other for a long time, it's often like a school reunion and they come together and they have to rehash their pasts and figure out if they connect with each other now and where things might be going in the future. And that's certainly something that is a big, big element of this film that a lot of other films do as well. And you, you like Romy and Michelle. Do you have any others that you like? Uh, I mean, Romy and Michelle, I do love Romy and Michelle. It is, there is nothing serious about that movie. Uh, I mean, that is just like a sort of ridiculous over the top comedy, which I love. Um, you know, offhand, I'm now, I'm now, of course, drawing a blank. I mean, I'm thinking of things like, uh, which is predates this, like Return of the Sea Caucus 7, the John Sayles film that I think we had uh, talked about as a potential episode for a, a previous season. Um, and I do love Gross Point Blank. But now, of course, I am drawing a blank on this, but I feel like it is a common a common thing. People coming back to their college campuses or things like that. I, I have also attempted to write similar kinds of things. And, and unlike you, I, I tend not to uh, succeed at finishing those projects, but it is certainly an idea that's uh, that's on my mind. I don't know. I'm thinking of like. This is a bad example, but like that Josh Radnor film, uh, Liberal Arts. Liberal Arts, yeah. yeah. That one's not very good. You're no, right. it's not. Uh, and it could have been better, and we would have liked that. And then there was that um, that TV show on Netflix, right, that did that. Uh, oh, that Friends was... from College, yes. The Nicholas Stoller film, which is also or a uh, series, is, is quite bad, I think. But yeah. Yeah, has a very similar tone. I'm sure it was influenced by Peter's friends. Right. So American Reunion's a good one. I think oh, yeah. that, you know, the American Pie one. And then there's, is it the D-Train, the Jack Black movie? That that was a pretty good movie that I don't think a lot of people have seen. That is, yeah, that is a movie that takes a very strange turn um, after the reunion between Jack Black and, uh, is it James Marsden, I think, who's in that film yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah, it's a good film. Yeah, yeah, it is. But uh, is some directions that are different from what you would expect at first. Well, um, well, I'll throw one other and then Dave, if you have any that you want to throw out, please do. But or, or a couple others. I mean, there's Garden State. And I would say, how about um, how about Before Sunset? That's that's an amazing example of something like this. Yeah, And I love Before Sunset. And one of the great things about that movie is that it's a reunion for the viewers, too. I mean, most of these movies we're talking about, we are just kind of told about the background of the characters uh, now that they've come back together or return to their hometown or something like that. But before sunset is like, you were there with them in that yeah. previous place. And now we're all reuniting together. And I do before sunset is one of my favorite movies of all time. So absolutely. That is a great one. Uh, yeah. This might, this might be a weird example, but I, I was thinking because these people are mostly all creatives. Like I was thinking about when like sitcoms do like a reunion special, like a friend's reunion special, something like yeah. that. And they all get together and sit on the couch and talk, <laughs> sure. you know? Well, I didn't think of that, but I'll tell you a movie it did make me think of that I think was probably influenced. And I love this movie was uh, Mike Birbiglia's Don't Think Twice. Yes. Yes. That oh, yeah. is a good example with the creative troupe and they're all kind of trying to figure out their next stage in life or whatever. Yeah, that is a, that is a good one. And I think, uh, you know, with, with, Egan Michael Key better better than uh, friends from college in terms of him playing that kind of part. So Josh, Rita Rudner and Martin Bergman were what is interesting about this uh, structure is like this could have been a play. And as you remember, uh, they wrote a play that took place here in Vegas in the Las Vegas Little Theater called Room 776, which I never saw, but I do think uh, is pretty interesting because I feel like structurally, 
it might have had some similarities to this. Yeah, I don't remember that, but that's cool. And of course, I mean, Rita Rudner, I'm not sure if she still lives here, but for many, many years, she had residencies at various hotel casinos here in Vegas. She was one of the biggest like Vegas performers, even as she was also still touring around the country as a stand-up comedian. And, and as I kind of was alluding to before, she's done a very small number of acting roles, but really has just made her whole career on being a comedian and, and a very, very successful one. And I never saw that play here, but I did see Rita Rudner perform stand-up and I thought she was fantastic. That was one of the funniest uh, comedy shows I've been to here in Vegas. So as a comedian, Jason, what do you think of Rita Rudner's stand-up? Yeah, I mean, she was so successful and you got to remember like, what the the 80s and the 90s not the easiest time for a woman to you know kind of have that access so um just uh yeah just the og baller to me josh yeah did you ever see her perform here in vegas i didn't i'd like to see her it would be great she hasn't come back in a long time though yeah i was looking i mean she has some tour dates listed on her website so she's still out there performing but i'm not sure why she doesn't even, you know, come back here for uh, occasional one-off shows that often because she was here for so long. Hey, Josh, you know, I know the character's a little older and we consider uh, it to be like a Joan Rivers homage, but do you think there's something to the Gene Smart character and Hacks that has a little of that Rita Rudner? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, whether they researched that specifically or not, I don't know. But given how long-running... Rita Rudner's show was in Vegas. I mean, more so than Joan Rivers, who would perform here from time to time, but I don't think ever had like a residency on the level of Rita Rudner. She is absolutely the Deborah Vance kind of person and, you know, someone who could have had a talk show. And I think Rita Rudner did have a like a daytime talk show at one point. So it's not as closely uh, matched as Joan Rivers, but absolutely. I think there's a lot of Rita Rudner, Rita Rudner in there. I feel like Rita Rudner deserves a cameo on hacks at some point yeah josh i uh, speaking of uh comedians i mean stephen fry is a comedian a presenter an actor a podcaster probably an author like one of the smartest performers around and he's having quite a year he's in the liar he's in the sandman he's in the dropout he's in he-man you know he's uh he's doing it right now and what a variety of projects that you just named there, like so many different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And he can do that. And then he can host a game show for 15 years and he can write right. a play. And like, yeah, he's still not nearly as famous here in the US as he is in the UK. I feel like you're right when you compared him to someone like Steve Martin. He's just such a an institution over there that he's not quite ever become over here. We always talk about the BAFTAs. He hosted it 12 times in like 15 years. So um, wow. I do want to check out some of those podcasts, Seven Deadly Sins and Great Leap Years. So, um, you know, Hugh Laurie, a major star now. Uh, he's doing a ton of voice acting now. I think a lot of these people are going to be in the Canterville Ghost. Um, and he's also in the amazing Maurice and All the Light We Cannot See coming up. So uh, doing it. Amelda Staunton, as we know, Vera Drake got the Oscar nod and a BAFTA win. And she's in The Crown and Harry Potter. So. Just all these guys are killing it. And uh, I'm pretty happy that Belinda Law is 90 years old and has been acting up through like uh, 2020. So that leaves us with Alfonsia Emanuel, who founded a theater company that I think is in uh, the Caribbean and in Britain. And she hasn't really acted on film since 2002, but she was in the original British version of House and Cards and is still going strong in the theater. 
Yeah, I don't know how much theater. I mean, it seems like she kind of uh, retired a bit to to live in the Caribbean and just do some occasional things there. But um, certainly the least famous of all of this ensemble, but doing you know her own thing and 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 probably satisfied with that. I want to give another shout out to Vera Drake, which I think we probably talked about in reference to Mike Lee in our Secrets and Lies episode. But that is just such a fantastic movie, and Imelda Staunton is so 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 good in that. And you know, mainly in the U.S., she got more fame for being in the Harry Potter movies and the Mamma Mia movies and is, you know, coming up on the crown. I'm sure that will give her more attention as well. But Vera Drake is just absolutely amazing. And I really think people ought to check that movie out. So I just want to give one more shout out to that. And of course, House with Hugh Laurie is, is the way that he became known here. And that was like, I think I said, it was interesting that he was this big comedy star in Britain and he comes here and he does this serious medical drama and that's how US audiences are introduced to him and then people go back and they're like, oh wait, but he does funny stuff too. It's this interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, you could almost do like a, you know, like an FBI tree if this was like a mafia family or something and how they're all connected from the footlights to all the different projects they've done together. They all act with each other in so many different things, which is awesome that they started these relationships 30 years ago and uh, 40 years ago and are still acting together. Right, right. Do we want to talk more about Branagh as a director? Do you have other favorite films of his that he's directed? Uh, yeah, I've said I've said this in the past episode. The Hamlet is amazing. I love Hamlet. And um, I'm excited to see him as Boris Johnson coming up in uh, this septid aisle. And he's going to be an Oppenheimer next year. Yeah, I don't know about that Boris Johnson thing. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I going back to way at the beginning when Janet Maslin talked about Branagh as a director and not having a particular style. I feel like that's the thing is that as a director, he's like the world's most middle of the road kind of guy. Like he can come in and do all those blockbusters, which has really been most of his directing career in the last decade or so. Thor and the Cinderella remake and his Poirot movies and Jack Ryan shadow recruit and even, you know, Artemis Fowl, which was this notorious failure. But all of those movies are just super anonymous. He kind of comes in and he just gets the movie there. And that's fine. And none of them are all that good. But even Artemis Fowl is not the worst thing. It's just kind of there. He's the guy who can get Shakespeare to be accessible to people. You know, he's made five of the I've never seen that Hamlet. So I mean, yeah, it's that a four hour movie. That's not a, that's not the accessible. And that's the one that's like, wow, he's going for the masterpiece here. Yeah. And maybe that is. I mean, like I said, I watched As You Like It before this, which was nice. It was pleasant. It was about the same level of nice and pleasant as this movie. And it was the kind of thing where you could show it to someone who is skeptical about Shakespeare or not familiar with Shakespeare and they could get into it. It's got a lot of silly comedy stuff in it and it's easy to follow. Um, but it didn't make a huge impression on me. And I feel like that's that's how I feel about most of his movies as a director. Well, what's interesting is you're talking about him as kind of like, you know, uh, I guess you would say just a, a work, a workman. Right. Right. Director. Journeyman kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And yet he made his most personal movie last year right belfast was the the one and it kind of broke through won him an oscar for a screenplay and i liked it i didn't love it but it's another great use of uh modern you know of rock music to irish rock music in this case to like set a movie and and that was the real breakthrough for him as a director i think yeah i mean and i liked belfast i think belfast suffered from the fact that before it came out, it was somehow designated as this like big Oscar front runner and people yeah, expected agreed. something out of it. And to me, Belfast is a really nice, pleasant, 
middle of the road coming of age story that's good but not great and so it fits in with the other like yeah it's personal but it 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 feels anonymous in a way even though it's personal and and that's not like i enjoyed it i enjoyed it a lot more than a lot of critics did but it still didn't feel like anything beyond that sort of nice middle ground that kenneth branagh lives in yeah it was in the middle of the troubles one of the most uh you know, violent times in the history of Ireland and, and no one really gets injured or hurt or anything. Right, like, right. It's, it's, like, a, it's a nice movie. Tough. Right. Here's Van Morrison. Dee, yeah. dee, dee, dee. And, I, and I didn't mind that. I thought that was part of the point of the movie that even when stuff is as terrible as that, you still have to appreciate your family and appreciate your life and find nice moments. And like, that was okay. But I feel like that is the Kenneth Branagh thing is just finding niceness in whatever he, he makes. Nonetheless, uh, you know, as good as it gets as an actor. Yeah, well, you know, we talked about Wild Wild West. He can certainly yeah, other than that, that's uh, as bad as it gets. <laughs> other as than an that, actor, but he's a great yeah. actor. He's he's a fine actor. He's a fine actor. He's he's often quite hammy. Not only in Wild Wild West, but uh, you know, even here when he plays that drunken scene at the end, he overdoes it. Yeah, uh, what did I just watch him in as a as a villain? Where he it was probably something from the '90s again. Where he just goes so big and everything like that. I forget. Was yeah, he does that a lot. Even when he directs himself, like he's the the like Russian villain in that Jack Ryan movie that he made. And this is just like awful Russian accent. And it's just he's just hamming it up like crazy. And and as a director, allowing himself to go completely overboard with it. So whatever. He's fine. He's fine. So anything else on the legacy of this film that you want to mention, Jason? Uh, no, I, as I said, I really hope that we get that Tony Slattery comeback here and everything. Yeah. That's sort of my real rooting is for here, Josh. There would be a nice redemption arc for that guy after all of the difficulties he's been through to get the chance to come back and do something great that, uh, that reaches a wide audience. Uh, but you can appreciate him here. Like we've said, this is a movie that probably not a lot of people have seen, but give it a chance. Check it out. It's a really pleasant kind of lazy afternoon viewing that you can yeah. enjoy and, uh, and and go watch them again on uh, all those um, whose lines. Oh yeah. The whose line is in anyway, always, uh, always fun to watch. So yeah. that is Peter's friends. And that is this episode of awesome movie year. Check us out on uh, social media. Be oh, our we're on. Yeah, we're friends in real life and on social media, and you could be our friends at least on social media. I don't know if I want to be your friend in real life, but mm. I'll think about it. If you go follow me at Jason Harris comedy, at uh, Instagram uh, or Facebook or Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter or Facebook. I'm at Go for Jason, my website, which is uh, friends to nobody because it's not even really a thing at this point in time. But Go for Jason on Letterboxd is good. We're at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And we have a website, awesomemovieyear.com. Yes. I also have a website, joshbellhateseverything.com, but hmm. Not the best, um, but do follow me at Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and uh, at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, where I am making more comments on movies there than I am on my old ass website that I don't ever update. So <laughs> check out Letterboxd instead and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join in the conversation with all my friends in Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces on Facebook, our Facebook group. And a quick reminder, Dave and I always look at new trailers on Piecing It Together at the beginning of every month so where we try to figure out what movies 
have influenced them. Maybe Peter's friends will be a piece in one of these trips. I bet it will or has been a relevant piece for something. Because as we said, it's, it's actually quite influential. What do we have in our next episode, Jason? Josh, we're going to the Sundance Film Festival. And some years, you know, we have the movies that win and they break out and they're huge. And some years we get these lost films that are uh, were sensations at that moment and then very quickly faded away. But it continues in the year of Steve Buscemi. It's the winner of the Sundance Film Festival, the grand prize winner, the grand jury winner. It's In the Soup. So tune in next time for In the Soup. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.